This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. New South Wales TAB punters, here is your chance to share in $1.3 million in prize money when the Kosciuszko is run at Royal Randwick on October the 17th. You could share in the ownership of one of the 14 runners in the world's richest race for country trained horses. You're in the running if you purchase a $5 ticket via the Tab app or at your local TAB outlet or enter as many times as you like by purchasing multiple tickets. Ticket sales close on September the 7th and 14 winners will be drawn on September the 9th. If your name or the name of your syndicate is drawn, you'll then have the opportunity to select a horse to race in your entry. Then your negotiating skills will be put to the test as you endeavour to reach agreement with the owners regarding a prize money split. Bell Flyer won it in 2018, Handle the Truth won it last year. You could share in the ownership of the 2020 Kosciuszko winner when the big race is run at Randwick on October the 17th. Tickets are available right now via your Tab app or at your local TAB outlet. John Hunt caught many friends and associates by surprise when he decided to quit his role as Sky Channel and Gloucester Park harness racing commentator at the end of 2008. He was only 51 at the peak of his powers and very popular with a large audience of trot fans who hung on his every word. To illustrate the esteem in which he was held by the WATA, the controlling body of the sport in Western Australia, I should mention the reaction of one key administrator when John signalled his intention to hang up the binoculars. WATA CEO Rob Bovell said, John, are you sure you want to do this? You're not just the caller at Gloucester Park. You are Gloucester Park. But John had other things he needed to do. He had a couple of books in the pipeline He wanted to make more of the wonderful video documentaries for which he'd won several awards and he and wife June wanted to check out the harness and thoroughbred codes around the world. He was barely in control of his emotions when he walked into the broadcast box to call the last race on Friday, December the 12th, 2008. He'd been downstairs for a touching presentation before a big crowd and during his absence, a large group had assembled in the broadcast box. Undaunted and ever the professional, Hunty called that last race with his customary flair using many of the clichés which had made him a household name in Australian harness racing. I came across John's autobiography the other day while fumbling in the bookcase, and it prompted me to see how he's getting on after almost... 12 years since that unforgettable night at Gloucester Park. A big welcome to the podcast to John Hunt. Oh, Tabby, that is the greatest opener I've ever heard, by the way. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, it feels like yesterday. Um, just before we start, can I just say it's, uh, it's a genuine treat, as always, and an honour to chat with the great man who had no small part, albeit 
unknowingly, to be sure, in uh, in launching um, my adrenaline into the stratosphere and making me want to experience what you experienced as a caller. You were a seller of dreams, Tappy, and I bought one. Bless you. Well, I'm very humbled to hear that, John, and uh, you were only 14 years old when Mount Eden won the Miracle Mile in Sydney. Little did I know a Perth teenager uh, was glued to a radio set listening to it. Oh, truth. I, mean, I remember, you know, it was just amazing. I had, I had, remember those old clunker tape recorders with the press play and pause <laughs> and you had the microphone hanging out the side. <laughs> yeah. And I, it, I, I used to go around the house driving everyone mad, replaying races of you and Bert Bryant, Vince uh, Curry and those blokes, Bill Collins, and and, uh, and then doing my own phantom calls off newspaper onto the tape recorder and playing mm. them back. I can tell you the disparity between the two was somewhat alarming at the time. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, uh, it was just a, an amazing time where... Um, you guys were narrators. You had the opportunity before and after the event to to wax lyrical about what you were about to see and what you'd just seen. Mm. And these days, you know, they don't have that chance. They're gone before the last horse has crossed the line and they arrive, they cross to them when the light's blinking on top of the gates. And so they don't have the opportunity to develop that side, I don't think, like you guys did. No, and uh, you're quite right, it, it John. inspired me. It inspired me to want to be one of you, and um, I think that that is is actually the main reason I became a broadcaster is because mm. of the the stories that that made me feel like, wow, what a world this is, and I want to be part of it. And I didn't come from a racing family. <laughs> no, I know you mm. came from a tennis family, and we'll talk about that later too. Mm. Now, John. It was a big decision at age 51 to call it quits, to stop doing something you loved passionately and you were right on top of your game. Have there been any regrets? No, I've never stopped missing it though, but I've never regretted it. Um, The the two are not the same. Um, It's hard to walk away from the thing you love. I always say that and I, I still miss it and I still enjoy having a call every now and then when I'm allowed to. Um, you know, over the years, I've sort of wandered back into the broadcast box and then poked my head around the door to see if uh, mm. uh, anybody will allow me to call a race, and they do. <laughs> um, yeah, Richard Bell's been very kind to me over the time, and um, yeah, yeah, come in, Hunty, you can call the last, I'll go home early, you know. Mm. Like um, but I, I had things that I wanted to do while there was still time to do them. I felt like I was at as you said, at the peak of my powers, but also in a uh, a bit of a, a a point in my career where I didn't think there was anything I could advance to next. I didn't want to go to the eastern states. Mm. I was happy staying where I was. I'd been doing it for decades, and um, I, I just felt like there were other things I, I needed to do in my life while I was still young enough and had the energy to do them, and writing books was one of them. Mm. Um I also wanted to travel. Um, I wanted to, um, to to see the world. I'd never had a chance to. And I, and as you know, John, I met the right person to do it with. So at that time in my life, it just seemed all perfect for me to do that. Your immediate mission after race calling was to research and write the story 
of the great WA thoroughbred mare, Miss Andretti. The story of the battling trainer, David Mueller, who had the pick of seven weanlings in a paddock, all by the low-profile stallion Itaram. One of the fillies ran straight up to him, and he was instantly besotted. He took her home, oblivious to the fact that she'd win 19 races, 2.9 million, five Group 1s, and the world-famous King Stan Stakes at Royal Ascot. John, that was a story that simply had to be told. Yeah, it's, you know, I didn't retire for that reason. That, that happened afterwards. But I, um, I, I, you know, I'm sure you're the same, Tappy. People are always coming up to you and saying, oh, I've got this great story. You should write it for me and tell this. You know, th- that happens a lot. Mm. And I always make polite excuses and, you know, sort of try and get out of the conversation. But with this one, I thought this is uh, – actually, it was Wes Cameron who came up to me. You know, Wes is the mm. – um, uh, head of racing radio of the of the of the racing department. He um, at TAB Radio, sorry, and he said to me, um, "Honey, I know that you know you've got your own things you want to write about, but this is a story that begs to be told." And he said, "If you just meet the bloke and and find out more," so I did, mm. and it was the type of stuff. I wrote a series when I was young called "The History of Racing," a fifty episode thing that. I put on the radio and, and syndicated around Australia, and it was that sort of story that um, nostalgic, um, bred from nothing sort of horse, you know, the champion from nowhere and trained by a, a nobody and um, bred from nothing, and and it just it just had everything in it that I thought makes racing great. You know, the racing mm. is littered with million dollar duds and two bob champions and mm. and this encapsulated that more than anything i saw and so you know out of nowhere i found myself writing a story about a, a, a bloke who I, I previously had never heard of mm. and or didn't know and uh and about a horse that you know i'm sure there's been uh, better horses over the over the years but um this horse's story is one of the greatest stories I've ever come across. Mm. She won her first 10 races in Perth. She went to Lee Friedman in 2006 to win another 10, ridden in all but one by Craig Newitt. You called the book Princess, very fitting, and copies are still available. Are the details online, John? Um, yeah, if you, um, if you just look up... Uh uh, John Hunt Books. Yeah, I didn't know you were going to ask me that. JohnHuntBooks.com. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I think they direct you to a PayPal site. I still get the odd, um, the odd person sends a request through for one of my books, so that, mm. that's nice. But um, it was published by Random House, so short of that, uh, I'm sure they've got the details. It's a lovely read, Princess. Now, your second book is your autobiography called The View from the Clouds obviously relating to the years you spent in broadcast boxes high up in the stand, sometimes on the roof. And uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, a great I vantage just, point. Yeah, just a play on words. But, um, you know, it was uh, – it, it started that – actually, that comment came from the day I met Trevor Jenkins and, and I recalled it when I came to, to write the book. Mm-hmm. Trevor were um, – I'm sure most of you, you listeners would know, um, was the was the principal race caller at 
in, in Western Australia in the 1970s and, uh, and into the 80s. And um, he said to me, uh, I, I ran into him in the, in the book, he's read, well, I sought him out uh, mm. to find out how do you become a race caller. And he invited me up into a spare broadcast box to, to cut a long story short. And he said, if you're any good, I'll let you know. And if you're no good, I'll let you know that too. <laughs> and uh, he said, but, um, you know, this is where you got to be, up in the clouds, see if yeah. you're any good. Beautiful. And um, and I always remembered the view from the clouds. And I remember the first time I walked in there and the first race I ever recorded. And mm. I, I remember the smell of the, the grass and the manure and the sweat. And it, I just it fell in love with it the instant I walked in there. Addictive. Mm. Yeah, I can smell it now, Tappy. <laughs> John, as a young boy, your dream had nothing to do with horse racing or media. You oh. wanted to win Wimbledon. And back then, you thought you could. You were wow. one of the most promising junior tennis players in Australia. And when injury halted your career at just 16, you'd won every state and schoolboy title in WA. But this back problem suddenly appeared and there's little doubt it was a result of your efforts to develop a big serve. Uh, yes, and a kick serve. I used to have a big kick serve for a, for a kid my size and I was never big. But, um, you know, I always think back to those years with, with great um, enjoyment that I had them and I remember the absolute horror of losing it and and wondering you know is this the end of me sort of thing but now with the advantage of retrospect i realize that it did me a favor because it launched me into where i was supposed to be and i how would you know that at the time and yeah. you don't but yeah. fate I, um fate yes destiny yeah. it, it, whether or not you believe in those things i certainly do i'll mm. tell you that because um i've experienced it and when I was a kid, though, growing up, I, you know, you have this wonderful uh, innocence and you don't understand the world at large and you think because you're winning in tennis every match you play or 98% of them and mm. you, you, reali you don't realise that you're a, a big fish in a little pond, as the cliche goes, but there's mm. an ocean of piranha and sharks waiting for you outside, but you don't know about them. <laughs> You know, That's right. And, and, and you, when you get out there and you're playing against men and you're just a slightly built kid, you suddenly – the whole thing, I remember going to America and England for a couple of years when I was 16 and 17 and, and it, was, uh, it was incredibly intimidating and frightening and lonely and, of course, you didn't have the internet. And you, I was writing 30-page letters home that would take two weeks to get here because, you know, yeah. all you had was those email, uh, Par-Avion airmail mm. things. You yeah, Par-Avion. <laughs> <laughs> you and I would be the only two that remember that. I know. And and I had my big clunker tape recorder that I would, um, I would mm. drag around everywhere with me and, and, and talk into it and, and relate all my wistful mm. feelings and, you know, I was more into that. What I didn't mm. realise was that I was more into that than I was into the tennis. Mm. And, and it was like this um, passion that was brewing that I, I didn't realise what it was until I was confronted with the fact of losing what I'd assumed 
was always going to be my future, which was my tennis. Mm. And, you know, Tappy, I don't think I would have been good enough, even with the experience of getting older, when mm. I was using wooden rackets when the metal rackets were coming in. Um, I, I never got to play against the really elite guys. I was too young. You know, I played mm. against lots of good guys and juniors, but mm. I never got to, apart from the odd match, you know, where I, I was playing in the men's singles Mm-hmm. Um, because I was able to get into the draw at 16 or something within Australia. I might, you know, play the odd Davis Cup player or something. I, I mm-hmm. remember getting a set off Mal Anderson when I was 16. It was in the Davis Cup at the time. And, mm-hmm. But they were like the highlights of my career. Mm-hmm. But if you added five years to me and I'd been 21 or 22 playing on the circuit against those guys, I think I'd have got blown off the park, to be honest. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I think it all it all worked out, John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You played Mark Edmondson on one occasion. Mark Edmondson, he was an Australian Open winner. You played people like Brad Druitt, Paul McNamee, Peter McNamara. They were not slouches. Not slouches. No, and I I got a set off a few of them. All the blokes you just mentioned all beat me, though. I never never beat any of them. (laughs) So I remember getting a set off McNamara. I think I got hammered by Paul McNamee. Um, Edo, I had a good game with him one time, and he uh, he went on to win the Australian. But um, you know, he was he was a much bigger, stronger, better player than me. And um, uh, Brad Druitt, I remember playing him in Sydney at White City, I think it was. And mm. um, I, I, you know what, I, I might have made a career that I could have earned a living at in tennis would have been doubles if I if I'd gone. I was mm. a pretty good doubles player. Yeah. Um, a guy named Myron Pushik um, and I mm-hmm. won um, state doubles under 19s all around Australia. We won the Australian and Victorian. We won the Queensland. We won the WA. Um, you know, we won a lot of s- state titles. And mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I might have been able to fashion a career with that. But, you know, it's all academic, it's all moot. The tennis genes were obviously very strong in your family. Your elder sister, Leslie, was at one time the number six female player in the world. She made the semi-final of an Australian Open. She made the fourth round of a French. She twice made the fourth round at Wimbledon and she qualified for four US Opens. She could hit a ball. Yeah, no, she was the real deal, Leslie. She had lots of great games with Yvonne as well when they were growing up. Uh, Leslie lost the final of Wimbledon Junior to a girl named Christy Pigeon one year. I remember that. Mm. Um, she uh, won Federation Cup with Margaret and Yvonne and uh, and Kerry Melville Reed. Mm. Um, she was uh, she was hot and cold. If I if I, if I was honest, you know, when she was on the circuit, she had. Um, she had some bad losses, but she had some great wins too. And mm-hmm. there wasn't many that, that she didn't beat over, over the time. I remember one year she got voted uh, as the best match of Wimbledon for that year. And, mm-hmm. and it was against Chris Everett. Mm-hmm. And it was in the first or second or third round or something. And they had to stop for bad light at eight all in the third set after mm-hmm. it was a set all. And they came back the next day and Chris won 11-9. Leslie, Leslie mm-hmm. just lost straight away, but, you know, it was 11-9 in the third against Chris Abbott, who was number one in the world at the time. Yeah. John, we'll just pause to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you in one moment. 
Entries are now open for the 2021 English Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the English Bloodstock team. Once your tennis career was over, you focused on breaking into the race calling business and you've already mentioned your meeting with Trevor Jenkins in the betting ring at the races. Later on, you got permission to use vacant broadcasting boxes at Thoroughbred, Harnessed and Greyhound venues and you practised until the cows come home. Yes, I do remember that I was given... um, you know, I was very lucky to, to, to be at that time. I mean, broadcast boxes, they're not readily available, but for some reason at the time when I was trying to get into it, there was a broadcast box available at uh, Gloucester Park, at Ascot and Belmont in WA and at Cannington Central Greyhounds, which had just started. And um, I just spent six months going to every single meeting and, um, and and being in this spare broadcast box and practising calling onto my clunker tape recorder mm. and <laughs> playing it back to whoever would listen, uh, Trevor in particular, and saying, you know, can you can, can you give me the salient points on what needs to improve? Mm. I don't know about you, Tappy, but I remember the first times, first few calls I did, it was just this diabolical mass of colour and, mm. and, um, and, and just obliterating the bloody language, trying to get words out. But um, when I – I remember going home thinking there's a thousand things I did wrong, but I knew what the thousand things were Yeah. just instinctively. And the next time I went, there was 900 and then 800. And <laughs> within six months, I was calling. I was had my, I had my first job. I was, I was still 18. Yeah, you get back what you put in, don't you? Mm. Yeah. I think I just turned 19. Just turned 19 when I caught my first race. Mm. So when did the big break eventuate? What do you class as the big break? I don't know. It was a series of things. I, I always say my timing was very good. Um, you know, it wasn't that I set out to have great timing. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, Trevor Jenkins uh, got me uh, the first job I had at 6IX mm. and – but 6IX was about to be uh, replaced as the racing broadcast medium on radio in WA by 6PR, mm. and 6PR became a, a, a behemoth. I mean, they, they became the giant of broadcasting in Western Australia, which, and, and it was many years later that it actually split off and had TAB radio birth out of it as well, or racing radio as it was at the start. Mm. But... Um, you know, when, when I got that job transferred from IX into 6PR, um, little did I know I was at the beginning of, of, of something that would grow into this huge thing. And 
um, become the first official TAB broadcaster in, in Western Australia. Mm. Um, and, and it was a fantastic job. And, and I, I was given every opportunity to succeed and expand, and, and, and I did. And, and I, I decided early on in the piece that I wanted to branch into all sorts of things. I had this urge to write. I started writing radio series and I wanted to be on air as well and I wanted to, you know, host my own program and sports show and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I diversified but always with the one thing as numero uno that no one could ever get me away from and that was race calling. Yeah. I, I knew that that, you know, a lot of people over the years have offered me jobs to, to and, and, and better money uh, to go to different things and, and, and do that, like host television programs and something like that but at the cost of race school, so I wouldn't do it. No. Um, because that was the thing that I, I loved most. It was the thing I always uh, felt that I was best at and uh, the, the thing that gave me the impetus to, to, to be in the industry for 40 years without ever losing a job, you know. The first harness horse to tug your heartstrings was the remarkable Mount Eden, winner of the 71 Miracle Mile in spectacular fashion. You were 14 you listened to that race on radio in Perth. Twenty years later, Mount Eden came back to WA from a Victorian stud and you were invited to participate in a special farewell to a great horse at Gloucester Park and that's one job your heart was in. Well, let me tell you how uh, both, both of those sections of that story uh, began. First of all, you were the caller in 1971 and I was listening and it was just the most greatest call. I don't know. I remember you saying, um, this is the single greatest racing performance I've seen by a thoroughbred or a standardbred in the history of Australian racing. <laughs> it was a fantastic call. Mount Eden galloping at the start, losing 50 yards and he won by about seven lengths or something. Yeah. And, um, and you went absolutely ballistic on air and I just I remember listening to that and just thinking, oh, i just got to do this. I've got to find a way. But then I knew I never would because I thought, you know, I, I, I love my tennis. And um, But, I, but I, you know, the passion was brewing and it was always there and it just had to be given vent at some stage. And when I lost the tennis, that's how it happened. But all those years later, when Mount Eden came back to Perth, uh, that was me and my first wife, um, Robin, who, who brought him, who arranged to bring him back. Um, he Because old Jack Miles... I uh, was getting on a bit at the time and Mount Eden was 25 and we, we just had this idea to bring him back and parade him in front of the crowd in Western Australia. Mm. And the CEO, uh, Rob Bovell, said it was a great idea and it all came together and we, we brought this old horse out onto the track with the um, the, the, the guy who was looking after him in, in Victoria, had him at stud all these, and, and old Jack. And... Honestly, Tappy, you should have seen the people. They were just swarming to the fence with thousands of people there in the middle of winter um, to just to pat this horse. It was like a myth walking down the home straight. I mean, that horse was just – you look at his record in the cold light of day and it doesn't read like much until you see the replays and you realise just this horse was just unbelievable and he just never got to be all he could be, but the myth remains. Would I be correct in nominating Pure Steel as your all-time favourite harness horse? How could a horse win 68 races, including three Hunter Cups, four WA Pacing Cups, 
and the 1978 Miracle Mile. You had a special friendship with his owner, Russell Roberts, who was uh, a well-known businessman and bookmaker. Yeah, well, it's a big story. I'll try to, I'll try to be brief, but he is the first champion that I called and the one I've never found cause to supplant with someone that I've seen that's better. He, he was the bravest, toughest, beautifully gated. He just was an amazing animal and he just found a way to win so many times and he was slow out of the gate and he had to work harder than everybody else and he was in the breeze or three deep for a lap when he was trying to get there and, and then he'd just punch everyone to death, you know. And uh, You called into Dominion one year when Locano and Koala King went past him in the straight. Now, remember, mm. he'd made three runs in the race that night. Yeah. Uh, he couldn't get around and, and, and he still ran 30. He was in, you know, should have run 50 yards last. Mm. And that, that's the type of horse that he was. But I went to school with Russell's son. I was in love with Russell's daughter. And Russell was like my mentor who um, who helped me in the early part of my career and who taught me a lot about horses themselves. And Stilo and I became very good friends. Um, Stilo was a real bull. He, he would uh, take a chunk out of you if you weren't looking. Mm. But he, he taught me how to be wary of horses without being scared of them. And it, it helped me understand the animal a lot more and I've, I always felt that Pure Steel may be a better race caller mm. um, because he, he taught me so much about the bravery and um, the the heart and soul of horses and mm. that's about as brief of, uh, uh, as I can be on that take, John, but Pure Steel and me, it's a big story. And a new line you use there and a very interesting one, Pure Steel made you a better race caller. Uh, I don't know that I've heard a, a commentator, past or present, make a similar observation. Remarkable. <laughs> well, I, I, that's how I feel. Yep. I, I do feel like. Now, John Village Kid died at the remarkable age of 31 at the property of his part owner and trainer, Bill Horn, in 2012. This freak raced 160 times. 93 wins, 24 seconds, 12 thirds, 2.1 million all those years ago. At one stage, he won 19 straight, all in the top grade. He won 13 Group 1s, two Miracle Miles, and on two occasions, he won all heats and final of an Inter-Dominion Championship. Later on, you produced a brilliant video documentary on his career, entitled Tribute to Willie. Mm. Yeah, he was, uh, freak's a good word, he, on so many levels. Um, he was the fastest horse out of a gate I, I think I ever saw. Mm. I remember him in that Queensland into Dominion. He led from eight, I think it was, and he was, in, he was on the rail in 40 metres. Mm. Um, he, he just could fly and then settle for Lewis, for Chris Lewis, and and then go again at the end. And he was running times then that were uh, quite astonishing. And the most astonishing thing about him was that at his very last appearance on a racetrack, um, 13 years of age, he ran in a time trial at Gloucester Park mm. and went the fastest that he'd been. He, he went 
155 yeah. when 155 was low flying 50 today. Yeah. Mm. And um, it, it was just unbelievable, you know, that a horse of his age, admittedly it was a time trial, but you can imagine the records that tumbled that night. I mean, mm. the world record was for a 13-year-old on a half-mile track. Mm. was something like 158.6 or something. Mm. He comes out because 155. Yeah, freak, I mean, absolute freak. Oh, it was just ridiculous. And um, Yeah. But he, he loved to race, Willie. He, he just was a wonderful um, mover and very fast and equally strong and mm. very durable, you know, and his trainer, Bill Horn, um, was just a, a lovely man. Everybody adored him. And, uh, and he shared the horse with the world, didn't he? Yeah, he shared. He, he, he was just the most wonderful ambassador mm. for the sport, Bill. I used to call him Uncle Bill because he just made mm. you feel like he was your uncle, you know. Mm. I used to love him and uh, we had a great relationship over Well, that video, Tribute to Willie, won the International Racing Video of the Year at the World Trotting Conference in Paris, which was a very popular conclusion by the judges. Now, another champion WA pacer to figure in your career was the brilliant San Simeon, best known for a staggering sequence of 29 wins. His remarkable run was broken in a heat of the 1981 Hobart Inter-Dominion by a Sydney horse called Michael Frost. You'd expect his trainer and driver, Lou Austin, to be bitterly disappointed at that defeat, but instead he said, thank God for that. Yeah, finally that's over. (laughs) Yeah, he said the pressure has been unbearable. Yeah, I think he burst into tears too. um... Yeah. But Lou was, uh, he was a very emotional sort of character. I, I, I used to always uh, um, interview him, of course, and Oregon, uh, Lou would tell you the number of times he burst into tears during an interview with me was, <laughs> it, I, I, I'd always consider it a mission complete if I got Lou to cry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, some cry say with, they uh, can... Cry with joy, you know, about, about yeah. achievements. Some try to do that with Chris Waller currently in the thoroughbred world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he often obliges. <laughs> now, John, you love Jack Morris and you love Preur Chevalier, who both won Inter-Dominion Grand Finals, and you've received numerous awards and gained wide recognition uh, for your video documentaries. Let me have a stab at your personal favourite. The 1992 WA Pacing Cup was not only one of your best calls, but it inspired you to produce a wonderful documentary called Summer of Frost and Ice. The title being a combination of the names of trainer Vic Frost, driver of Westburn Grant and Franco Ice, who ran such a gallant second. It was equine warfare that night. It was uh, It was a, one of those larger-than-life stories again, John, that I, I felt had to be told and... And, and put into perpetuity because it just didn't deserve to drift away in people's memories. And, and, and I put a lot of time and effort into that film. And you're right, I think that that's probably my favourite film. Um, but it's, it's such a great story. Uh, you know, here was this horse, Westburn Grant, who was coming up at the rate of knots, and, and Franco Ice, who 
been the greatest certainty beaten in an Inter-Dominion final in history in New Zealand. We'd lost 60 metres at the start and had to jump a fallen horse and got mm. beaten a neck mm. by uh, a horse called Mark Hanover, I think it was. Mm. And um, he, But he, he had bad legs and uh, it stopped him being an absolute legend in the sport. I think he still won four or five Group 1s, you know, a bunch of Grand Circuit races and uh, he might have won a Victoria Cup and a QPC and things like that. But... Mm. Um, in Perth, the two of them came together, and Westburn Grant was—he'd won something like 25 out of his first 27 starts. He'd already been to Perth and won a pacing cup, um, and uh, he'd won the Golden Nugget as a four-year-old over here. Mm. And then, all of a sudden, he came over and and uh, he won on the. Um, his, I'm trying to think if he won on the first night and then um, mm. uh, the Frost Boy died or I think the Frost Boy died before they got here, They mm. before they even got here, that's right. Mm. And, um, and of course, they landed in Perth and, uh, and, and Gary had died and um, Vic and uh, Margaret had to decide whether or not they were going to stay here. And you can imagine the traumatic decision that they had to go through, whether to put the horse straight back on the plane and, and go home again or to, to leave it here and to go back to their son's funeral. I mean, it was just devastating. Mm. And uh, they made the mighty brave decision to go back but leave the horse here. Mm. And then what happened was Westburn Grant had never been apart from Vic in his life and he finished sixth yeah. as a, a seven to two on favourite or something. Fretting. Uh, when he was driven by uh, Glenn, I think, on the night, Glenn Frost. Mm. And... Um, and and instead of being heats where you had to earn points to get into the final, it was an invite, mm. and um, they still invited him into the final, and Vic came back, and um, he fixed the horse up, and uh, he came out, and he, he, he'd never started anything other than favourite in his entire life, mm. and he started 10 to 1 from barrier 9, mm. which is the outside of the front, and Franco I started 7 to 4 on, and, uh, and Westbury ran across them at the start and Franco had to sit in the breeze outside him and couldn't get over him. No. And Alan Parker, who you know, uh, the, who was the registrar here, he um, and many other things, but Alan said uh, on that night, I did an interview with him and he said it was though the entire populace of Gloucester Park suddenly switched camp and started barracking for Westburn Grant. Even if they backed Franco Ice, mm. you could feel the whole place supporting Vic and Margaret as this horse came down the straight, lifting and lifting and lifting and just finding a way to hang on and win. Mm. It was such an emotional moment and, um, yeah, one of the great stories that's ever happened at Gloucester Park. Few people listening to the podcast would be aware of the role you played in the evolution of Sky Channel which has changed the lives of millions of Australians. The station was originally owned by Alan Bond and had its beginnings in a back room at Channel 9's Perth Studios <laughs> with a tiny staff. And in those days, you were broadcasting into pubs and clubs only. You were one of the true pioneers. What was your role in those days? Well, I was... Uh Hosting the uh, the races is, is sort of the main guy, I suppose. And mm. um, but you know there wasn't much to host, John. I think no. there was you in Sydney. I think there was um, Alan Thomas in Brisbane. Yeah. And uh, I think we had Gloucester Park trots, mm. and that was about it. Yeah. And we had to spend 
untold hours of running replays of truck racing and things from America, mm-hmm. <laughs> filling, filling in gaps for hours and hours. Yeah. And um, like you said, there was no stuff. But it was all learning this new thing. And then, um, and then of course, it only lasted a couple of years and it all went over to, uh, to Sydney. And uh, I think it was Club Superstation became Sky Channel. That's exactly what happened. And yeah, and um, I stayed in Perth. I didn't want to go east, as, as I mentioned, and uh, I started calling the races on Sky Channel, and, and, and that was how that started. Mm. But just while we're on the topic, you know, you and I developed a, a wonderful on-air rapport um, in that period. That was the mid-'80s. And um, it was when I first – I think I'd already interviewed you before that when I was at 6PR, but – I, I actually had never um, sort of gotten close close enough to you to be, you know, for us to become friends. And, and during that time, I thought that we did. And you know, me crossing to you, we had so much time. You know, I could cross mm. to you minutes before the race, and we could chat and do all that. And it was a wonderful period. And when it finished, you wrote me a little handwritten letter, Tappy. Mm. And it's on page twenty-seven of my scrapbook. Here it is. Dear John, a quick, I got it out because I knew you'd mentioned this. And a quick note to thank you for your kind comments on Sky Saturday, July 4th. I was deeply touched by your words and sincerely meant every word of my response because this was me. I, I, you know, I, I did a big spiel when it was our last moment together on air. Mm. And then he went and said, it's been a hectic but very enjoyable few months. We've all been flying by the seat of our pants in pioneering the exciting new concept of satellite racing. The new regime will certainly have it a lot easier than you guys did. Four or five years down the track, when home viewers are watching a sophisticated national service, you and I will know how it all began. I'm delighted we're going to hear your voice in Perth, and I hope it's technically possible to have a chat on air from time to time. Again, John, many thanks for the wrap. The time we spent together, it's been a pleasure working with you. Sincerely, John Tapp. Uh, tre- I treasure that letter. And you know what has become a, a document? It, it, it's like a something of value from a, a time that's gone now. And we're at the beginning of something, Tappy, and look what it's become now. I'm very flattered and very complimented that you would put it aside and give it a special place in your scrapbook, John. And may I say <laughs> that if I were writing that same letter today – I would uh, express my feelings in exactly the same way. Oh, good on you. <laughs> we should probably have to, if you had uh, enough young people listening in, we should probably explain to them what a scrapbook is, Tap. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, goodness me. When you started your 20-year run at Gloucester Park, you were calling on course and through the ABC regional network. When Sky started... The ABC dropped out. Now, John, many believe you were the most entertaining harness racing caller in the nation. Your passion for the sport really shone through and you peppered your calls with cliches which have become legend. Probably the most popular was the one you used when a leader had enjoyed an easy trip in front and you knew that horse would really dash home. What did you say? You'll shoot the lights out from here. (laughs) (laughs) Says it all. It says it all. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, they were great years. George Grilisich retired in in 1989 at Gloucester Park and um, 
I got offered the job and I jumped at it. And I wanted to change it from being um, or, or change it to, to – uh, I had my own image of, of what it should be. And the ABC, I got in – I had a meeting with them and I, I said, you know, you've got nothing else to do on Friday nights um, except play music. Why don't we make this into something that it's never been before? I said, I will introduce quizzes. I'll find the people to donate prizes. I'll do world news of trotting. I'll do interstate news of, of trotting. I'll have interviews. I'll um, bring in all these historical segments. I'll talk about all the, uh, the history of, great, of all the races that we're covering and all that stuff. I'll fill the whole thing. Wall to wall with trotting, and this is a statewide broadcast, mind you, on the ABC. And mm. and they said, "Well, why not?" So I did that, and that lasted for uh, about ten or twelve years until Sky Channel came along. But mm. I always feel like that was the most comprehensive um, broadcasting uh, part of my career that I ever had. I was able to just. Be full on. I mean, uh, I, I, half the time I never had time to learn the colours of, of the races because, you know, we'd still be talking about things in between races and right up until the fact that was, they were scoring up because we had the time. There was no ads either, you know, ABC. Yeah. Down by the palms was another popular cliche as the Race field would the palms, yeah. make their way <laughs> down the back straight past those majestic palm trees near the 400-metre mark. Well, you know, the funny thing was, Tabby, the, um, after, soon after I retired, they did some renovations across the park and they cut some of the palms down and they shifted them to the front of the grandstand so that, the, you know, they're pretty up that side of the race course. Mm. And I got uh, an invite back into the broadcast box to call a race just probably, I don't know, a year after I'd, I'd finished. Mm. And, I, I, and I'm calling the race and they're going down the back and I've gone, and I thought, I'll chuck in that, you know, because people want me to say it. So and at the 500, the racing by the palms, what's left of them anyway? And <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember yeah. saying that. Well, I can understand that uh, affecting you to a degree. There's <laughs> <coughs> a big part of your life in those palm trees. Well, you know, it's funny. It's funny what you say as a commentator that, you don't even realise is, is something that have, is having an impact with with people as much as what it is. And, I mean, it's just as, you know, I just originally started saying that because it was an observation of where they were on the racetrack, location-wise, mm, you know, mm. they are racing by these parts. Yeah. I started saying it. Next thing, it's like my mantra. People, uh, you know, always pull on my coat saying, make sure you say racing by the palms. And, you know, I never really understood why it was such a big deal, but it, but. It, but, you know, I'm glad that it was. It's nice to have something that people like you for. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> is. Now, John, I've just quickly tallied questions that I'm not going to have time to ask, and uh, they total about 12. Right. Uh, but our time has been exhausted. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, let me just say that that back injury you sustained all those years ago was pretty devastating at the time but it set you on the path to another career which has taken you to the absolute pinnacle of your profession. Wimbledon's loss was a massive gain for the Australian racing media. God bless you, Tappy, for saying that. I, 
you know, I loved every minute of it and I was very, very fortunate to be able to find a new avenue uh, where I could expand my passions for life. And, um, you know, if uh, if I did a, a, a job that made other people happy, then I consider it successful. So I'm very pleased to have had the opportunity to do it. And thanks for joining us on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis.